You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. We are here at the PRSA International Conference in San Diego, 2009. My guest is Anne Peru Kanabi. Uh, she is speaking here at the conference. She teaches public relations at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and she, uh, part of that, or actually is also an, an Air Force reservist. Uh, she works in strategic communications there. Prior to that, she was the spokesper- spokesperson for the Pentagon War Court. And she did two tours in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, I am pleased to have her with me on this podcast. Thanks, Eric. So let's get the most important question out of the way first. This one actually is a question from Gary Goldhammer, uh, a digital strategist at Edelman who was also featured on this podcast. He wants to know, what do they serve the prisoners to eat at Gitmo? Eric, I would love to answer that question, but my hands are tied, um, or maybe I should say my mouth is bound on that one. Um, As the war court spokeswoman, the only thing I was allowed to talk about was the Office of Military Commissions and those activities, and I was not allowed to talk about um, the detainees on the island. That is very much um, handled by the public affairs officer on the island. So we we were one of the big lessons, um, stay in your lane, and so I can't even answer that. But it says on the internet that they actually have a McDonald's and a Subway there. Okay. Um, the apparently, the, that yeah. that's not for the detainees. I, it's I, not. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I think I think um, that's safe to uh, comment on that. They did have a McDonald's um, at Guantanamo Bay. It's part part of the Navy base there, and um, I think like any um, military base that they do try to accommodate the troops to a certain degree. Have you ever eaten at that McDonald's? Went through the drive-through. Does that count? Well, I, went, I went to the McDonald's in Red Square, and it didn't taste like a regular McDonald's. You know, the French fries were a little different. I wonder, is the one at Gitmo just as good as a regular McDonald's? It's just like a regular McDonald's. Big Absolutely. Mac tastes like a Big Mac. Well, I didn't have the Big Mac, but the egg McMuffins were exactly the same. Okay. So, and, and you know, a little PR lesson. One of the, one of the. PR 101 when working with journalists, if you have a vehicle, which I did as a public affairs officer most of the time that I was down there, um, help the journalists out too. So I sometimes would be picking up things for the journalists as well at the McDonald's and um, developing relationships. Again, PR 101, helping them out. So you were, um, you served in two tours, two active tours during Operation Iraqi Freedom Mm -hmm. uh, as the uh, spokesperson for the Pentagon War Court. I I can I cannot imagine I, I can imagine fewer more difficult jobs than that. I mean, it seems like in the mm-hmm. world of public relations, public affairs, you must be the hardest working person in the free world. Well, Eric, I would never say that. Um, but just to make a, a slight distinction, there, I did one tour, one tour for the Pentagon War Court, and prior to that, did two tours overseas um, in support of operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. Um, I actually served at a base in uh, Southwest Asia, which is uh, uh, 
the heart of all the air operations that are going on in the area of responsibility. So we had aircraft going into Iraq, into Afghanistan, and um, really kind of the biggest military depository of U.S. aircraft in the world. But it's exciting because a lot of different missions, a lot of different aircraft, a lot of things going on. So there's the famous um, speech that was given by a senator, which led to the formation of the State Department, this idea that, you know, we need to win hearts and minds abroad. And uh, um, the Joint Chiefs Chairman, Admiral Mullen, in a recent speech to the uh, American Legion, uh, which is online, the transcript's online, we'll actually have a link to it in the show notes, said, um, you know, the war in Iraq is not a war against something, it's a war for something. And he said it's a war for the trust and confidence of the people who live there, who he believes, if they have an alternative, will not let the country fall to the clutches of the Taliban. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing the end of it there. And so, I mean, what is the job of a public affairs person at a base, you know, during Operation Iraqi Freedom? Are you supposed to be winning hearts and minds? Are you supposed to be building a business case for the incursion? I mean, what are you trying to do? You know, Eric, I've always thought of myself, and this sounds almost corny, as a cheerleader for the Air Force. So when we have people doing good things, I try to publicize that through the media. Um, In my particular assignment, it was with the 379th Air Expeditionary Wing. In that assignment, I um, had more than 10,000 U.S. forces and coalition forces uh, that were considered an internal audience. So we had a literally a weekly color magazine that went out to these folks. We had daily e-news updates. So really strong internal communications program as you would with any um, Fortune 500 company, your own employees, your people. We also had other target audiences, um, international media. We'd host international media um, at the wing and they were interested in finding out more about the aircraft, the missions. You know, it could be anything from bombers to refuelers to fighters to um, C-130s, which are a transport aircraft. There's a, an amazing story behind all of the people that support these, from from your mechanic on the ground to, uh, you know, who's changing, literally changing tires on aircraft, which they have, to um, the amazing air crew that fly them, to the people that work in um, finance on the base that makes sure you get paid. And the, just, the list is on and on about the amazing things that people have done in the armed forces. But the armed forces report mm-hmm. to the president of the United States, who's the commander Correct. in chief. Correct. So the armed forces don't really decide when they're going to be thrust into action. Those decisions are made by politicians and elected officials. So, I mean, are you, as a public affairs person, are, are you and your spokespeople being asked by the media to justify what it is you're doing? I don't think I've ever been asked that directly. I think at times um, media will try to have us take a position whether this war is, is right or wrong, and, and they... They back off pretty quickly when you come back with a comment and it says simply like, I can't, really can't comment on that. That's not my decision. However, what I can tell you, and you go back to your key messages, what I can tell you is we have an amazing group of professionals. We have an amazing group of airmen from all walks of life that are contributing, doing good things. And I always try to focus on the good stuff. Of course, things go wrong. Planes crash, people get hurt, and that type of thing. And you need to address those as they come up, too. But we've never taken a position like, is this right or wrong, or, or what, what is the reason we're here? That's, that's not a public affairs officer's job. 
but I've got to think, you know, while the media may back off, I've got to think that people through social media probably don't. They probably feel empowered through these channels to be able to have these discussions and talk back and forth about what they think. And I wonder, I mean, do, do, does the armed forces see it as their duty to engage in that conversation? Or is that something that's supposed to be handled by state, the State Department? Or, I mean, at what point do you decide, hey, we are the military. Here's what we talk about. Here's what we don't talk about. And, and how, do you fi- how do you find that line? It must be a, a moving barrier, depending on what it is you're discussing. Social media is a terrific question to ask about because the rapid growth and you know how any sort of military policy or things like that just takes months, years to develop. Um, But the incredibly rapid growth of social media, I mean, we're just trying to keep up with it in terms of how we can use it to our advantage to get our key messages out and um, obviously major concerns about what we call OPSEC, which is operational security. I mean, we don't want some troops on the ground that are are talking about our next move or our next course of action that would endanger um, our troops or any any, um, sort of compromise any sort of our positions in this um, contingency operation. And, And that's really where, you know, there's people are, I think people are nervous, red flags are raised. Um, But we also trust our airmen at this time that they have common sense and, you know, that they do have messages to say. A lot of them have blogs. A lot of them are, you know, involved in Facebook and things like that. And depending on where you are in um, the war zone, you may or may not have access to um, certain social media outlets. But we do see it as a wonderful avenue, and I'm speaking at least for myself, a wonderful avenue to reach out to some of our um, target audiences and even new recruits. I mean, Air Force, what do you think? High tech, smart people. And, and these are the, the young folks that are on Facebook and other social media. They're Twitter folks. They're also savvy as well. And we, oh, go ahead. So there's the uh, slogan, every service member, a spokesperson which mm-hmm. is used by the armed forces. Um, and I wonder, you know, what, what does that mean when you get into social media? Does that mean that you could somehow leverage your service members' Twitter networks or Facebook friends to get the message out? Is that the thought? Or is the thought that the U.S. Armed Forces would establish their own Twitter accounts and their own fan pages and get it out that way? Let me answer that question. Yes and yes. Um, For example, uh, every person is a spokesperson. Everyone has a story to tell. All of our airmen, and I speak for airmen because I'm Air Force, um, have wonderful experiences. And as a reservist, they, which I am, they're leading almost dual lives. They're citizen airmen and citizen soldiers back in their communities back home. And they're also serving overseas. And when you couple that into a social media Environment. You just think how powerful it is to share their experiences and and bring um, the war and the contingency back home and make it more real. And it's not just something you read about some abstract uh, number of deaths or things like that. It's real people serving. And on the flip side, um, we have folks like uh, the Air Force Reserve Command. Um, uh, many of the service chiefs have their own. Twitter accounts, they have uh, blogs, they even have Facebook pages, and they're reaching out. Um, For example, Air Force Reserve Command has um, a presence on Facebook as well and use it to publicize some of their different um, missions, things like that, and also build an online community. And I think that's 
a lot of what's going on in social media, building communities and alliances and, and support and communication. Where is the Pentagon War Court physically located? I guess uh, that that's that's it depends on what you look as the war court. The facility yes, itself the facility. is is located at Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, the offices are in the D.C. area, um, the Office of Military Commissions, and that's the body that oversees um, the court cases. Is the court beholden to the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights? Or is it is is there some advantage to having it on overseas because then it's not governed by our laws? Eric, and I think that's a question that um, hundreds of people, thousands of people, are asking around the world, and that's that's one that's so complex to um, to even start diving into. That would be a whole conversation in itself for hours on end. Um, but I, there's many people that take different sides to that issue. In my case. I'm not the person that decides where the court is and based on what. I could just basically salute smartly and um, talk about the things that I was able to, uh, and w- which was actually just a tiny bit. You know, 1% of the information that I was exposed to was things that could be publicly released for various reasons. But, but the, the court could be anywhere. I mean, it could be at the Pentagon if they wanted it to be at the Pentagon. But they've decided to put it at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. There must be a reason, a strategic reason for that. I'm not the one to answer that question. I wish I could. Um, I've been asked that before, but that's really something that's not within my purview to answer. Now, I, uh, I know you had an experience there uh, towards the end of last year uh, with a, um, a hearing that was underway with uh, a colleague, uh, Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, concerning a uh, confession he made about his participation in the 9-11 uh, bombings. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping you would tell us about that experience. What was pretty interesting, um, KSM, the alleged mastermind behind 9-11, and um, a couple of other uh, detainees that were allegedly involved in it were in court in December last year, and um, from a public affairs perspective, it was uh, you know, a lot of high stakes involved. Um, we had victim family members, people that had lost loved ones in 9-11 that were also attending the court sessions in addition to about 50 media. And in um, uh, the middle of the um, court, uh, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, stood up and claimed, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, claimed, you know, um, yes, we did it. Basically, pled guilty. Um, but the interesting about the war court, interesting thing about it is they're going to give all the due processes possible to the detainees to give them any opportunity um, uh, to be. Uh, and it, I guess the the way the court is set up. So if there's any shadow of the doubt that you know they might be innocent or things like that, they're going to go through the full court process. So even though someone stood up and claim, you know, took full responsibility, they'll still go through a, a very formal process that will ensure that they have rights, which is kind of a really, really interesting um, thing to think about. A lot of people want to go out and convict people right away, um, especially detainees, there's anger and things like that. But the way the system is set up, it's a very fair system. Um, I, 
talked with one of the defense attorneys on the plane back to the United States and said, what, you know, why do you, what makes you want to defend detainees? And I was just fascinated by it. Um, you know, what, what would possess? It's hard for people to understand that. And he came back and told me he believes so strongly in the due process and the importance um, that we give everybody a fair shake in the trial. That's why he did it. You know, I was talking to um, uh, U.S. Marine Corps Major Danny Chung, who handles public affairs at uh, DINFOS, mm -hmm. and um, I was asking him about Matthew Ho, who uh, recently resigned um, from a post uh, of active duty uh, for the Marine Corps, uh, saying that he didn't think it was worthwhile to serve in, Iraq, in Afghanistan, that it didn't make sense. And I asked him about that, and he said, you know, what, that's, what we, that's what we're fighting for. We're about freedom, and everybody has the right to speak their mind. Even this Marine, uh, um, even this Marine who resigned and wrote this damning letter, he said he didn't read the letter, and he didn't necessarily agree with the guy, but he said what we're fighting for is the right of people to speak their, to speak their minds and to be free and to have liberty. Um, so I wonder, you know, you, there's a lot of pressure on Guantanamo by um, free speech activists that it should be shut down, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not, this isn't me making this up, right? There's a lot of, like the ACLU is really against the idea of a war court. Is that, is that correct? I wouldn't, you know what? I really wouldn't want to make any assertion um, speaking for another organization. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm, you know, as, as somebody who doesn't have the inside purview that you have, and it certainly isn't as sensitive to the, to the complexities of the situation, what I see just, you know, on a superficial level from the media is a lot of pressure that, hey, we should shut Guantanamo down, this is ridiculous, we should use the regular court system, this idea that, you know, look, if you're going to be a free society, if you're going to be an open society, if you're going to be about liberty, everybody's got to have liberty, and you know what, we'll be able to ferret out uh, the bad actors and the malicious you know, terrorist activists. And, and let me say, uh, let me, I, I don't want to be insensitive to the people who obviously lost loved ones at 9-11. And you know, I, don't, I don't want uh, people to think that I'm you know, personally in favor or against closing Guantanamo. But, I mean, you're an expert. You know this stuff. What is the defense? I mean, when, when someone from the media... One of these 50 people comes at you and says, look, why do you guys have the war court? It's ridiculous. It's, it's not constitutional. You know, you guys are operating outside of the rule of law that we have in the states. What's the response? Eric, it was a very complex response and, and somewhat of an education process. I was not in a position where I could say it was right or wrong, but what I could do was lay out the facts and um, literally had a chart several pages long that would have comparisons of the military commissions, comparing it to tribunals um, that had been done in the past, comparing it to in our own court system in the United States, and it is a line-by-line -line comparison on so many different levels, and um, it, it's very difficult for me to go into, again, it'd be a whole um, session in itself. Are there um, resources online that people could consult to get that? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, could, could you maybe share the links with me and then I'll get them in the show notes if someone wants to look into it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I think, I think the biggest lesson learned or, or maybe, maybe the most challenging part of it is the whole Guantanamo Bay situation is that it's so complex and if you're a 
typical American that skims the newspaper at best or looks at news online. It's it's hard unless you're dedicating hours and hours to this particular um, uh, whole Guantanamo Bay or Office of Military Commissions. It's so complex that it's hard to digest all the information and take it in. It's 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 a complex issue. So there's this um, uh, this section down on uh, Guantanamo Bay. I think it's called. Cactus Curtain, and it's the uh, landscape that divides Guantanamo geographically from the rest of Cuba. So I'm interested to know, I mean, if you're a service member stationed at Guantanamo, can you smoke Cuban cigars? (laughs) Well... Is that legal or no? I'm going to guess it's not, but (laughs) I haven't smoked any Cuban cigars. Um, So it cannot open... You ought to try them. They're terrific. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to, you know, I, I haven't been following that part of uh, Guantanamo Bay, but great question. I'll let you know. Okay, let's talk about the uh, the shift of assets from uh, Iraq to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, does it make sense? Can we win that war? Well, Eric, of course, I can't offer an opinion on that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a service member, but I, what I can tell you is that it's tapping into our public affairs officers and our enlisted folks as well. Um, Iraq was one thing, very busy, very dangerous. Um, I recently read that Afghanistan is 16 times more dangerous or 16 times more likely to die there than Iraq. Is it true? I don't know. I read it in one of the major newspapers. Um, But what I can tell you is in the Air Force, we have very courageous service members, very courageous airmen that are deploying on such a frequent basis compared to eight or nine, ten years ago, Um, uh, and they'll be home maybe a year, and then they're back in what we call the AOR, the area of responsibility, um, for six months. They're home another year and uh, back in for six months. As a reservist, I haven't um, faced that much of an aggressive schedule, but I, I look at these people and think they're the ones with the hardest job in the world. Um, how do you maintain a continuity of life? Um, and, and maybe that becomes your life. You are, you are uh, an airman at war, and um, that's how you serve. But I think it's, it's really an amazing, amazing thing because you're not just dealing with strategic messaging and... Um, the words and media, you're also dealing with your own life. Improvised explosive devices are blowing up, you know, 20 feet from your tent. Um, people are shot at. You, you see the statistics, and our public affairs officers are, are part of those people that are targets. So it's beyond um, media messaging, and it, it's, it's complex. And, you know, just like to say, these folks are really my heroes, the ones that are going in and out over and over again. And uh, I think probably they're all of our heroes. Um, Anne Peru Kaneb, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. <laughs>